Today's scripture reading is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Grace DC, and happy Sabbath Sunday. It's good to be together. It's good to be gathered as a community. We need that encouragement, even if we're just seeing one another virtually once a week. Last week, Pastor Russ had mentioned that November 3rd, which is election day in our nation, is not a Christian holy day. It's not on the Christian calendar. And in that, what we're doing is uh, reminding ourselves that while Christians praise God for the institution of the state, and while Christians pray for the leaders of the state, and while Christians are not immune or separated from transitions of the state or in this world, we too are subject to uh, its changes, its divisions, its upheavals. But there is one clear difference, and that is uh, these things do not reign and rule over us. Christ rules over us. We do not follow the course of the world. We follow the course that Christ lays out for us. Sometimes that uh, course or path leads us into times of peace. Sometimes it lead us, leads us into times of conflict. The course of Christ leads us into times of prosperity. It leads us into times of need. The course of Christ will lead us in times where we enjoyed favor and honor of others, in times where we experience rejection. Even then, we follow him a couple weeks ago, I had opportunity to return to my growing up town, Pittsburgh, to attend a family wedding. And I don't know if you've had this experience when you've been gone for a while. Obviously, the pandemic hasn't let many of us visit home. And, uh, and so you're all the more eager to connect with whatever good memories uh, and good relationships that you have. All the more if you're taking someone back with you. You, know, you want to show off the hometown, right? Um, you want them to meet your family. You want them to meet uh, your best friends, maybe uh, your high school teacher, that mentor in your life. You want to drive them by those hallowed places. You know, maybe it's the football field. Maybe it's a place where uh, you performed. Maybe it's just a place you love to go and hike. 
you want to take them by that special restaurant, that joint that serves the best burger or the best pizza, in your opinion. And this prospect of going home uh, fills us with warmth, the anticipation of being received by those who know and love us. Uh, Unless you're Jesus, Uh, Jesus goes home and he takes his disciples with him. He goes home to Nazareth, which is about 25 miles uh, southwest of where he was, Galilee. And maybe this was at the bidding of his mother or brothers. Maybe it was some of the town leaders that they'd heard about Jesus. Luke tells us that when Jesus was growing up there, he grew in wisdom and strength and honor among people. And uh, the hometown boy had done well. In a crowded and competitive career field, he was a standout. So maybe they were wanting him back that they could uh, receive him. Maybe that was why he was invited to teach at the synagogue. But whatever goodwill Jesus had coming in, He'd spent it by the end of that sermon. And what he was looking at was hostility and rejection. MRI studies show that the same areas of the brain that are activated during physical pain are activated during rejection. The difference is uh, by recalling physical pain, we don't activate that pain. But by recalling rejection, we do reactivate that same pain. And the effects are not small. It can cause, uh, it can actually lower your IQ, lower your ability to reason. It can result in aggressive behavior toward others or self-destructive behavior toward ourselves. All of this because of rejection. Maybe some of you uh, connect with this example where uh, there's a romantic relationship that ends and maybe it ends just because uh, the chemistry wasn't right or life compatibility, seasons of life timing, but instead you blame yourself. You experience inward rejection, a self-destructive tendency. In a world where a botched sports play can tarnish someone's reputation forever, in a world where uh, you can be canceled faster than a bad check, all of us are familiar with rejection. And Mark uh, tells us that if that's the case, you can find a friend in Jesus because he was the man of rejections. (laughs) He experienced more than anyone on the face of the earth. And he knew that going in. When the, the Son of God came to earth, His express mission involved rejection. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things in this and be rejected by this generation. He also said that no servant is greater than their master. And so if we follow Jesus into glory, we must also follow him into rejection and persecution. But understanding more about rejection surprisingly can give us hope through it. And that's what we find in this passage. I want to highlight three things that we learn, uh, lessons out of rejection. The first is rejection hits close to home. The second is that rejection risks the relationship for truth. 
And the third one is rejection propels us forward. Let's look at those three together. The first one, rejection hits close to home. Now, it's one thing to experience rejection online or experience rejection from a client, but it's quite another to experience rejection from those in our closest circle, those that we consider to be home. Yet this is the very place where rejection will hit. Jesus talks about how bad it can actually get. In another part in the scripture in Mark, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, of course, this describes ultimately what happens to Jesus when one in his inner circle betrays him unto death. And from his own words, Jesus uh, validates this point when he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Jesus seems to be saying that there is a particular unique friction that happens with those closest to us when it comes to rejection. Why? Because there's a clash of loyalties. I've shared with our Grace Downtown community that when I became a follower of Jesus in high school, I remember my father saying to me, as long as it's not more important than family. Because in my family, the, the functional God was family. Now, for you, maybe it's not that. Maybe there's another thing that gets filled in the blank, as long as it's not more important than the firm or the company, as long as it's not more important than the political party, as long as it's not more important than the jokes we tell or the sex we have or the drinks that we share. Whatever's in that place becomes a particular point of difficulty and friction, which then leads to rejection for the followers of Christ. Now, you would think sanity and gratitude would lead us to think, well, uh, you know, if we feel a special loyalty to those that are closest to us, how much more should we feel that loyalty to God? How much more should he have that supreme loyalty, the one that loved us into existence, the one that sustains us day to day by his hand, the one that would shed his blood to redeem us? How much more is he worthy of that supreme loyalty? And yet, in the insanity and ingratitude of our sin, we reject that. And here's the thing. Once we reject God as that primary loyalty, it's not as if nothing stays there in our soul. Our soul is like a vacuum. It'll pull other things in to be that loyalty. And it's many of the things that I had mentioned and, and far more than that. And so when Jesus then reclaims that area and turns us to God, we find that there is a clash of loyalty with those that we are most at home with, because that had been our bond all along. And it's this very loyalty that becomes the source of attack. Now, on the surface, when we look at the passage, it sounds like uh, those in the synagogue are just rehearsing Jesus's biographic information, talking about where he's from or he's the son of this or some of that. 
But there's hints in the text that this is more than just familiarity. These are actually uh, digs of rejection that he's experiencing. One is the fact that they refer to him uh, as this man or this fellow. I mean, imagine if you went back to your home church, and this wouldn't have been a large congregation, and you were referred to that way. He's being rejected and pushed out of the circle of familiarity. Or as they remind him where he's from, did he really need to be reminded where he was from? Well, maybe they were saying, don't forget where you're from. Don't think you're too big for this town. Or maybe they're pointing out the fact that other rabbis had studied in famous places with famous teachers. But who was he? And then there's this, com- this comment about the son of Mary. Typically in that day, a child would be referred to by the name of their father. Now, Joseph may have been dead by now, but either way, commentators and scholars is- believe that there was some uh, social criticism that they were bringing upon Jesus, almost as if to say, are you really legitimate? Are you a legitimate son? And what we find in common with all of these things here, and this is very important, that uh, the rejection takes the form of accusation. The rejection takes the form of accusation. That's very important if we're going to actually be able to combat it, to fight it. Now, those of you familiar with the Bible know that the scripture refers to the devil as an accuser. This is one of his names. And these tactics he brings close to home when it comes to rejection. Now, maybe uh, he just brings a flat-out lie before us, or maybe he mixes a little lie with truth, or maybe he exaggerates an offense that we've made, or uh, maybe uh, pretends to know our motives. But these are the words that come through others toward us, like arrows of accusation. But as Jesus comes and bears these accusations, it is actually uh, pointing us ahead to the gospel, a gospel truth that Jesus came to take the accusation that you and I deserve, both the true accusation, but also the accusation we don't deserve, the false accusation. One of my favorite um, pictures of this, illustration of this, is the prophet Zechariah. And uh, he has a vision of the high priest of Israel, and he's standing before the throne of God, and Satan is at his side accusing him. Uh, Read along with me here. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by image clothed, standing by. What we hear, what we have here is actually an image that is then unfolded in the New Testament. It's an image that uh, we find realized by the gospel. 
where we're told that uh, those that believe in Jesus and embrace Jesus are clothed with his righteousness. They're clothed with Christ. The Apostle Paul would say that we have a righteousness that not comes from ourselves, which would be filthy rags, but a righteousness that comes from God and is placed upon us by his grace, his pure mercy. And so we find ourselves holy and blameless before the holy God of the universe, the only one that can truly judge. We become recipients of what uh, Martin Luther called the passive and active righteousness of God. The passive righteousness being that Jesus on the cross uh, willingly uh, submitted to the judgment of our sin. He became the atonement. God uh, poured the penalty out upon him. But the act of righteousness being that which accrued through Jesus's holy life, the fact that he lived a perfectly moral, loving life. And it's this righteousness or these righteousnesses that are given to us. And why is that so important? Because until you, you and I understand that the deeper tactic behind rejection is accusation, we'll just always be victims of accusation and not victors. Luther had a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 not a comical, but uh, just in his Luther way, um, he gives us a sense of how he would do combat. So when the devil throws your sins in your face, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death, hell, and what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. You see, what if there is truth in the accusation? Well, then the righteousness of Christ enables me to stand and humbly listen and receive it. But what if it's just false accusation? The righteousness of Christ creates a breastplate around me where the arrows of accusation just bounce off. I can endure it. When accusation gets closest to home, there's something closer to home. And that is the righteousness of Christ. I am hidden in his life. And so I can face rejection. But there's a second thing we see happening here, too, and that is rejection risks relationship for the truth. Now, if you've gone off from your hometown, you've enjoyed some sort of success. Uh, when you come home, there's a certain way and you want a warm welcome. There's a certain way you try to navigate things to be pleasing to people, right? You, you uh, try not to be too big for your, br big for your britches, right? You uh, know how to be self-deprecating with your humor. Uh, you, you fit in and take your place. You know, where you're a friend and a son, you just, you're a friend and a son. You seek to keep the peace. And if you have a chance to speak, what do you do? Well, you know, you bring a pleasing word. You talk about the hometown values. You make a joke. You assert the pride of the community and its values. But really, at the, uh, at the heart of that approach is self-love, <laughs> self, uh, you know, uh, self-promotion. Jesus does none of that. Instead, he decides to love them with the truth. Mark uh, doesn't give us the outline of this sermon. But in uh, Luke chapter four, which is uh, most likely the very same scenario, we do get an outline of the sermon. <clears throat> Jesus opens the scroll to Isaiah, 
And he talks about the Messiah King, the anointed one that would come, who would bring good news to those that are poor, that he would liberate people from guilt of sin and the power of sin, that he would care for our whole being by healing the body and healing the soul and hearing the heart. He would come to the oppressed and those that were sick and demon-possessed and those that experienced social injustice, and he would be their advocate. So he says this, and everybody loves that word, but then he also has to come in with the truth and say, but the reality is uh, you, Israel, will receive not this or me, but you will test me and say, do miracles for us. And... God will move the gospel on to Gentiles who will receive it. And at this point, they're offended. We find that word. They're irate. They find great offense. And that word in the Greek uh, comes from the the root scandalon. Uh, And it's a word and a concept we find uh, through Scripture. It means to cause to stumble, cause to offend. You know, in modern uh, language, we say to scandalize someone's conscience. We even have shows on scandals, right? So here we find Jesus scandalizes those that are listening. They're offended by him. They're put off by him. And this is a concept, of course, that is then um, unpacked in the New Testament about Christ and who he is, that Jesus in himself and the gospel he brings will be offensive to the world. Why is it offensive? Well, because Jesus's moral purity exposes our lack of integrity in character and purity. We might have a surface purity, but we also have that part that, right, will gossip in the quiet places, the thoughts we think in our secret place, the envy that we feel. But Jesus was pure inside and out, and he wouldn't conform to the changing standards of the culture. Second of all, Uh, Jesus um, offends people by the fact that he's willing to redeem the irredeemable. The gospel says that Jesus cancels the debt of those whom we cancel out. Those that we say, you're irredeemable. You're off to the side. Jesus steps in and says, no, these are the very ones that I can receive and forgive And then Jesus' righteousness and justice is far beyond anybody's passion of righteousness and justice. The implications uh, offend conservatives on the personal application, or rather on the social application. And the implications offend progressives on the personal applications. Jesus' righteousness and justice cuts through all. And so we find Christ just in who he is offends us and offends the world. But more so, it's what happens on the cross that is offensive. Because the cross of Christ basically says that you, O modern one, us, you're really not good enough or just enough or smart enough or sophisticated enough to save yourself or save the world. In fact, you're boasting in those very things is even an indictment. Isaiah tells us this, that he, the Messiah, would be, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, the people in the synagogue in Jesus' hometown, they were amazed by his power and his skills, yet he was amazed by their unbelief. He was amazed by their hardness of heart. One commentator said, what amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. This is the greatest problem in the world, and herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. You see, there's a, a false narrative going about God that uh, God, uh, the God of the Bible, is not willing to receive sinners. He's not willing to receive the lowest among the low. He's only willing to receive the righteous and the proud and the smug. But that's actually false and foreign to the scripture. And Jesus's ministry shows that God will receive anybody. He will receive you. But what we find instead is rejection born out of a hardness of heart because it's hard to look at the cross and see yourself. It's hard to say, I deserve that, or this is really my state when you look at things morally. We can't bear to look at the cross because it tells the truth about us. But here's the thing, Jesus was more willing to risk the relationship and to risk his life and to give his life though he might tell us the truth and not tell us the truth in a way it often comes in our culture, where someone tells you the truth just to, to lay you out. You know, uh, to be right, you know, to feel like I'm right, to be right and not love is to be wrong. It's just plain and simple. Jesus sought to bring righteousness and truth, but for the sake of love, so that people might know the second part of Isaiah's prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus knew the risk was worth it if there was one person in that synagogue, one person that felt the conviction, that felt the offense, but more so, their heart was softened and they were hungry for him, ready to receive him. And so the question comes to you and I, who do you need to love with the truth this week? Who have you not been telling the truth to out of fear of rejection? The truth of your own testimony of what God has done, the truth of Christ and the gospel, now, I say that not to lay guilt upon you, because I feel that conviction myself. And there's actually good news. You know, the disciples were scared to death to tell the truth once Jesus was crucified. But then when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they saw the resurrected Christ, as we see by faith, they were filled with boldness to tell the truth. So pray that God fills you with the Spirit, that you might be able to uh, love someone with the truth this week. 
But uh, rejection risks the relationship, to tell the truth. But lastly, and to close, rejection determines to move on. Determines to move on. Uh, Mark says that Jesus longed to do more great works there. You know, how could he not, right? These were his people. This was his hometown. I'm sure the hope of Jesus was, I want to come back and give them such a gift of God's grace. Such a taste of heaven. And yet he couldn't. And this may be how you may be how you're feeling right now. That there is someone that you would love to to speak the words of God's healing to. You would love to see God move into their life and love them, call them to repentance from self-righteousness and self-absorption to him, to find him. And yet they won't receive it. And maybe you've been hesitant to move on. Well, even Jesus had to move on sometimes. I don't know what your story is, and I'm not giving you direct counsel about what you should do, but rather to say that sometimes um, even the Son of God longed to do more. But second of all, um, it may be that your experience of rejection and being stuck, uh, rather your experience of rejection has had you stalled out for years and years. That some relationship that you've had, uh, some uh, incident that occurred, some sin, whatever it would be, but you, you've been basically paralyzed by rejection. But you see, the gospel tells us that Christ has given us the very thing so that we can move on past that. It's time to move on from it. It's time to lay it at the foot of Christ. It's time to let it die by the sword of the gospel. It's time to let it be covered over the filthy rags by the righteousness of Christ. It's time for it to be drowned out by the loving voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son or daughter, with you I am well pleased. It's time for you to move on from that feeling of rejection which has been controlling some part of your life. And so following Jesus takes us into new places, places that we may not want to go. As we follow Jesus, uh, it takes us into rejection that hits close to home. But it also takes us into a place where we're willing to risk a relationship for the sake of truth. And it takes us to a place where we're able to determine to move on. This invitation to follow Jesus only means to do good for us. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Jesus, for your path of rejection that led to our acceptance. We thank you, Jesus, for the incredible uh, risks that you took in your relationships, willing not to make um, the, the applause of men your praise, willing not to make your hometown your home, your willingness to lift your eyes beyond that. And we thank you for what you give to us through the gospel, your Holy Spirit, that you will prevail in us. You who began a good work will bring it to completion. Those that you know have not loved with the truth will love with the truth. 
those that have been paralyzed with rejection will move on in boldness. Because you will finish the work. So I pray this for us. Would you strengthen our faith in Christ's name? Amen. Peace of God be with you.